You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, we're going to be looking at John 9 verses 5 to the end today. We're not going to stay to one, I promise you. We're going to be efficient with our time. But to get at the heart of this passage, if you would look with me in John 9, starting in verse 32. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. That's my prayer for all of us today, that we will turn our eyes to the Son of Man and worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the business of giving sight to the blind. Father, there are some here today that have not had their blind eyes restored. We pray that he would do that today by the Spirit, by the gospel. Many of us have had our sight restored, but Lord, we need to see more clearly. Give us grace to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday, we buried Shannon Works, our godly sister in the faith, faithful churchman, Dean's wife, wonderful wife, wonderful mother. She died of health complications brought on by no direct fault of her own. As we looked at last week, natural evil. This past Monday morning, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit uh, Turkey and Syria with a series of aftershocks for up to nine hours, killing now up to this point over 28,000 image bearers and hurting, injuring tens of thousands of others, not to mention all of the material loss by no direct fault of their own. Natural evil. This week on Wednesday, an old classmate of mine posted on social media that her son, who serves in the military, had died in a military uh, exercise by no fault of his own. Natural evil, an accident. Approximately 120,000 image bearers, children, are born each year in America with critical conditions that can cause lifelong challenges, largely by no fault of anyone. Sometimes there's abuse involved, and, uh, but that is generally the rare case, natural evil. The world 
this cosmos is overrun with a malignant tumor festering not only within the inanimate creation, but within every human soul. So this disease results in this world being consumed by natural evil, like the man born blind in our passage. Uh, suffering, a natural evil being, suffering rooted not in one's personal sin, one's direct sin, but in the sin of humanity that we inherited from Adam. But this is not the worst of it. Natural evil is merely the byproduct of moral evil. The evil of our first parents passed on to every single one of us by ordinary generation. What we need is a recreation. What we need is a regeneration. We need a complete restoration. The world needs it, and every human needs it. And the sign miracles in John, there are seven of them. The sign miracles in John all point, they have as their central purpose to point to that day of recreation and what the Son of God would do to bring about that new creation. A day when the light of the world overcomes all darkness once and for all. We're starting to see that in our passage as the light shines in the darkness. If you haven't caught that, in John chapter 1, John gave us the prologue, which is basically the table of contents for the whole book. And in John chapter 1, verse 5, this is really how our text breaks down today. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We're seeing it here, the light shining in the darkness, Jesus has come to a man who was born blind. And notice in verse 5, he says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We looked at this last week. I am the light of the world. There's only one light. It is Jesus. And why does the world need light? Because the world is overcome with darkness. I am the light of the world. Verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Now there is a clear connection between this chapter and chapter 8. In chapter 8, we saw in, in verse 12 that Jesus, in one of his I am statements, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here in verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And now Jesus is going to give us an example of what he means when he says that he is the light of the world. We are not left to guess now, there is a stark difference between the methodology that Jesus employs here to heal this man or begin the process of healing and what we see with his other miracles. 
Now in Mark chapter 7 and Mark chapter 8, he employs saliva. But here in, in this particular passage is the only place he turns the dirt on the ground into mud from his saliva and anoints the man's eyes. We're going to come back to that in a moment. We will see the importance of that in a moment. Uh, but notice in verse 7, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. John wants you to know what that name means because it's important. It means sent. So he went and he washed, notice, and he came back seeing. Now, the emphasis in this gospel has been that Jesus is the sent one. And that's why I think he tells us here the name of this place, this pool. If you look, even in this chapter, by the way, it's in Gospel of John, it's 17 times we read that Jesus is the sent one. But if you look back in chapter 8, verse 16, we see it even in this passage. In verse 16, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Then notice in verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness. Notice in verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. Okay, verse 29, verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. And then verse 42, most recently, we see, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I am not of my own accord. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And so Jesus sends this man to the pool of Siloam, which means sent. What do you think he's communicating here? Jesus is teaching by way of this illustration, this type, this miracle, that the only way to be spiritually cleansed, to be spiritually healed, is that you must go to the true Siloam, the one who was sent by the Father to save the lost. Now, somebody may argue, well, this, this proves that you have to be baptized to be saved. This man was cleansed in the waters. It's the only place a person is cleansed in the waters. This is a type. It is pointing to the fact that this pool of water, which is called scent, represents the one who brings true cleansing and true healing. Well, notice in the second part of verse 7, he went and washed and he came back seeing. This is the sixth of the seven sign miracles. Again, what is a sign miracle? It does not focus on the miracle itself. It's a signpost. It's a, an index finger pointing beyond itself. Because the reality is Jesus didn't heal most people, and the ones he did heal would eventually die. The seventh sign miracle will be him raising Lazarus from the dead. Well, Lazarus doesn't remain alive. Eventually, he would die. The point of the miracle was to point beyond itself 
to what Jesus would accomplish to bring about a new heaven and a new earth. Now, it is interesting, though, that in the Gospels, the most often recorded miracle is giving sight to the blind. Did you know that? When you study the Gospels, there's only one deaf and mute who is healed. Now, there were many miracles he performed that aren't recorded. We know that as well. But what is recorded, there's one deaf and mute who is healed. There's one paralytic who is healed. There is one person sick from a fever who is healed, Peter's mother-in-law. Two lepers are healed. Three are raised from the dead but there are five blind who have their sight restored. Now, what do you think that communicates? I think it communicates that at the heart of the problem is that we are spiritually blind. We know that the physical blindness uh, is, a, is, a, is a picture of our spiritual blindness. We know that from Isaiah chapter 6 and many other places in the Old Testament. Our biggest problem is that we're blind To our own sin, we're blind to the glory and the holiness of God. We are blind to the beauty of Jesus Christ and our need for him for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is our biggest issue. We cannot see him. We are blind to his glory. Well, notice in verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? When a genuine work of grace has been worked in a person... Um, it's impossible to conceal it. To put it another way, when the light comes on a person, the darkness flees. And others may not be able to explain it, but they know something has happened. Well, notice in verse 9, some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. Verse 10, so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? By the way, a lot of liberals believe that all these miracles you read about in the Bible, this was at a time before the scientific revolution, and they were a lot more um, naive about, you know, scientific matters. And so they believed nonsense like this. No, they didn't. No person had ever had their eyes restored before. The reason Jesus, the reason the disciples couldn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the grave is no one had ever been resurrected before. And so they asked, how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. By the way, this is just evidence. This is from God because if I was writing this and just elaborate, you know, just coming up with my own thoughts, I would have elaborated on this. I mean, the the way the author here just kind of moves on from the fact that he, he was healed with mud is astounding. And he said, he anointed my eyes and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went 
and washed and received my sight. And then they said to him, where is he? He said, I I do not know. And so this sign miracle of being washed and healed points us to the sent one who would ultimately achieve this. But when the gospel, when Jesus is at work, there's always going to be warfare. Know that. Um, When churches are advancing the gospel of the kingdom, there's going to be warfare. And we start seeing it here. We've been seeing it actually since chapter 5, but the first time here in chapter 9. And so we have seen that the light shines in the darkness. But what we're going to see for the rest of this passage is that the darkness cannot overcome the light. That's deeply encouraging. Look with me in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly been born blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. John wants you to know what day it was, not just to satisfy your curiosity. So, Old Testament saints were saved the same way you and I are. By grace alone, through faith alone, and in their case, the coming Christ, the coming Messiah alone. But after the exile, and we know the the exile was in 586. Actually, it began in 605, but there were three parts, three stages to the exile. And, And Judah stayed in exile for 70 years. But after the exile, the Jews began to drift more and more into what is known as, let me give you a fancy term, because you may read it in some book, nomism. The word nomos means law. They drifted into nomism, which means they started more and more to trust the law to earn merit from God. And the reason for this, it it was reinforced by the self-imposed oppression that they experienced from their the enemies, the enemy nations. It was self-imposed because of their sin. But instead of repenting, Israel increasingly saw God as distant. And so they returned to the law more than to God himself. And so the messianic expectation remained. They, They expected, they believed a Messiah would come but not one who would make atonement for their sins because they didn't see their sin as their problem. They saw a Messiah who would come and deliver them from political oppression and would restore the glory of de- the glory days when they had dominion over all the peoples of the earth. And they saw their responsibility in hastening that day to make sure that when he came, he would... He would bless their obedience and their merit because of their law-keeping. We see this with the Pharisees. And the issue here, as we saw with the healing of the paralytic in John chapter 5, is that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Now, why is that important? Well, the law said, as we know, that you shall not do any work on the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20, verse 10 
But the rabbis had added to the law. The reason they added to the law is they wanted to make sure you obeyed it. So they built a fence around the law. And, and in this particular law, the keeping of the Sabbath, they had written a book. And the name of that book was called The Sabbath and How Not to Break It. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> and they laid out 39 specific types of work that were illegal on the Sabbath. They were trying to protect themselves from breaking the law. So they built this huge fence. So according to the 39 add-ons, Jesus had broken the Sabbath in at least three ways. First of all, he spit on the dirt, which made mud, which violated the Sabbath because that meant he had been working. To make mud was to work. Um, if he had spit on a rock, I mean, you actually can read this. If he had spit on a rock, it wouldn't have been a violation of the Sabbath. But he spit on dirt, and it made mud, which meant he was violating the commandment. Secondly, he healed on the Sabbath. And that was considered a work. Unless the person who was healed, his life or her life was in danger. Well, obviously, this man's life was not in danger. He'd been blind from birth. Third, Jesus used spit as medicine. And the use of medicines on the Sabbath was forbidden because it was considered a work. And there's been so much ink spilled on why he used mud from his own, his own saliva to, to, to heal this man. I think it's as simple as this. He was exposing their self-righteousness. He was exposing their legalism. You know, God's always doing that. Uh, he's always at work. He does not take weekends. He does not take sabbaticals. He doesn't take vacations from that. He's always exposing our self-righteousness. He's always exposing our sin. In every situation you're in, in every relationship you're in, in every location you're in, God is exposing it. It's a grace. It's a grace that he exposes it. Why? Well, let me just give you one verse. I read that this morning, Psalm 36. He speaks about the wicked who flatter themselves in their own eyes. And here's the result. They cannot see their own sin, their own iniquity, and therefore they cannot hate their sin. They, they, they're self-exalted. And therefore they cannot see their sin. They see the sins of others, but they can't see their own sin. And therefore they cannot hate their sin as a result. So what God does, he's in the business of exposing it. So don't think that coworker is your problem. You are your problem, and God is using that coworker to expose it. That's what he's doing here. Well, notice in verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. They wanted to kill him on the Sabbath, but it was illegal to heal, to, to heal on the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, he said, he is a prophet. We have seen time and time again, beginning with the Samaritan woman, Jesus called a prophet and he is and this is true 
Jesus is the end time, the, the last day prophet prophesied by Moses in, in Deuteronomy 18. And why do we need a prophet? Because we're ignorant. We're ignorant of the things of God. And we need one who will come and reveal by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. But this is incomplete. Because everything Jesus does, he does not just as our prophet. He does as our priest and our king. Why do we need a priest? Because we're guilty. Why do we need a king? Because we're weak and we are helpless. So his miracles, every single one of them, reveal the nature of salvation. That's Jesus in his prophetic ministry. These miracles are pointing us to how God would ultimately save us. In this case, open our eyes to his glory. That's his prophetic ministry. These miracles also demonstrate God's mercy and his compassion, his steadfast love. That's Jesus in his priestly ministry. These miracles also display God's power and dominion over everything that is broken. That is Jesus in his ministry as our king. Think of it another way. In Christ, God to human relation, he comes as our prophet. In Christ, human to God relation, he comes as our priest. And in Christ's headship over all of humanity, he comes as our king. This man only sees his prophetic ministry at this point. Notice in verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he'd been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. You know, it's interesting. Most unbelief is not due to a lack of evidence. It is not. That is generally not the reason people don't believe. It's moral. Uh, in this case, they did not want the kind of Savior that Jesus was. They wanted one who would affirm their works, would affirm their merits, and deal with their real enemies, their political enemies. And it's the same way today. The issue generally is not moral. We go out and evangelize on Thursday nights. The issue, generally, or the issue is generally moral. It's not evidential. Uh, most people don't even care enough to even look into the evidence. What they do not want, though, is Jesus coming along and reshuffling their priorities. Life is good without Jesus reshuffling their priorities. Life is good enough without Jesus calling them to repent of the very things they love. Well, notice in verse 19, and they asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind. You think they're going to defend Jesus, but not so fast. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And if you're wondering why his parents would respond this way, look in verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Christ, Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. 
This is the first of three times that that threat comes to be put out of the synagogue. And, and it was a serious threat because it was at the synagogue um, that you had religion, political, consumer, and social life was all centered upon the synagogue. Well, notice in verse 33, therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. I mean, this is egregious. How long has these parents grieved the fact that their son was born blind since he was born? Uh, he had not diminished in worth to them. They loved their son. But the fact that they had grieved this their, his entire life, and yet here, they cannot even give Jesus the credit. And I think this is an opportunity for us to look into the mirror. Because how often, and I can say this has been true of me, maybe you can say it's true of you. How often has God blessed us? But in a given situation, we're afraid we're going to lose social capital. We're afraid we're going to lose maybe our reputation. Or maybe this person that really likes me, and I really want this person to like me and respect me, I may compromise that. And so I disassociate myself from Jesus. This has been a real issue in the Gospel of John, by the way. In chapter 7, verse 13, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. In John chapter 12, verse 42, we'll see many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogues. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare. And that's what that is. Fear of man means you esteem man's favor more than God's favor. Fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Just trust the safety of the Lord. How do you overcome fear? You overcome fear with fear, a greater fear, the fear of the Lord. Well, notice in verse 24, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. Uh, this was a common Jewish oath calling him to speak the truth. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I love this, though I was blind, now I see. These are words that every born-again believer here can say. Though I was blind, yet now I see. We sang Amazing Grace. This Amazing Grace was largely inspired by this verse. Though I was blind, but now I see. But I want you to note the key word here. The key word is the word know. Know. Um, one thing I do know. Do you know this is what sets evangelical Christianity apart from every other religion in the world? We can know. The doctrine of assurance. You can have assurance. Now, why can we have assurance? Because every other religion in the world teaches that man plays some role in earning God's favor. Every religion in the world. And there's even aberrant forms of Christianity that teaches that. And we recognize, as Cliff said earlier, it's nothing we can do. 
It's been done. It is finished. We can know because Jesus is the well-pleasing son for us. And so, for instance, 2 Timothy 1.12, we know whom we have believed. I love that verse. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death unto life. Romans 8, we know God works all things together for the good for those who love him. We know, 1 John 3, that when the Lord Jesus appears, we shall be like him. We can know. We can sing blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. This man said, this one thing I do know. I was blind and now I see. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? I love this sarcastic humor. Do you also want to become one of his disciples? I love that. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. Again, they were trusting in the law to earn favor with God. But they had misinterpreted the law. The purpose of the law was to drive us to the Savior. And they were using it as a ladder to climb to get to God. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? What's wrong with you? Your problem is not lack of evidence. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, and by the way, there's only one who does his will perfectly. And it's this one who gave sight to this man. God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, he would be like you and me. We can't do anything. When I preach, I can do nothing. When we teach the word of God, we can do nothing. It is God in Christ by the Spirit who can open blind eyes. I can do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. That's a reference to the fact that they believed he was blind because of direct sin. And would you teach us? You see their problem, they don't see themselves as sinners. And they cast him out. They cast him out. This is where it really gets good. Jesus heard. You get nothing past Jesus. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? This is grace in the flesh coming to the one who has been ostracized for the sake of Jesus. We need to be willing to be ostracized for the sake of Jesus. Unlike his parents, knowing that when we are, whether it's in your workplace or whether it's in your family, or whether it's on a ball team or in the classroom, Jesus knows and he comes to bear. He comes to bear. We're going to see next week. He's our shepherd and he's really good at that. This question Jesus asked here in verse 35, though, 
is perhaps the most important question we could ever ask. What is that question? Do you believe? Do you believe? I mean, that, that is the question of questions right there. Do you believe? Um, do you believe that I am the Son of Man? This is a reference back to Daniel 7, the one who would come and crush all the enemies of the earth and restore dominion back to the ancient of days for, to the, the people of God. Do you believe? Um, back in chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus had said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, and we saw that obedience and belief travel together, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on those who do not believe. That's why this question is the most important question we could ever ask. Do you believe? This is such an important question. It's the question of questions. And don't think by putting that question off. It's as innocent as if someone asked you to do a favor for them and you put that off. To put this question off is to disobey God himself, to usurp his authority, and to reject his only provision for your sin, the Son of God. If you hear the gospel today and you turn from it, you're rejecting Jesus and his gospel. And that not only may result in you experiencing eternal judgment, but the immediate judgment of having your heart increasingly hardened by your sin and unbelief. Well, verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father... Or that's verse chapter 10, verse 36. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, haven't found him, and he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. It's remarkable to see the steady growth in this man. Um, earlier, he just referred to him as Jesus, verse 11. But through the conflict and through his discussions, he came to learn that he was a prophet. And later, we saw that he perceived that he was one sent from God. But here, he beholds him as the Son of Man and as Lord. That reminds us that conversion, though it happens in space and time in one moment, is often a process of preparation. God, Jesus has been preparing this man. The conflicts have been preparing this man, and he now has been converted to Jesus. And because he's Lord, judgment will belong to him. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who may those who see may become blind. This is the line of thought when Jesus says in Matthew 9, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Or in uh, Matthew 18, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For judgment I came, those who do not see may see. In other words, those who recognize 
I am in a world of hurt apart from Jesus. And those who see, that is those who think they're right with God right now, because of their goodness, because of their merit, because of their works, they may become blind. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? They couldn't even conceive that. And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, that is, if you recognized you have complete dependency on Jesus, you're completely dependent on him, you would have no guilt. Why? Because he would take it away. He would take the guilt away. He's going to the cross in about six months. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. That has so much relevance here today. There are people today, perhaps even here, who believes, I don't really need a Savior. I believe in all in the end that God is going to be impressed with the effulgence of my glory. Your problem is that you see. You see. You think you see. And your guilt remains. You know, what this teaches us at the end They were blind, and so they could not see that a physical miracle had taken place and the purpose of that miracle. And this drives home to all of us that the biggest problem is not natural evil. The biggest problem is moral evil. We we lament natural evil, and there's coming a day when it will be brought underneath the feet of Jesus. But our biggest problem is moral evil. Scott Christensen says, and this is a dark statement, but it's true. From the cradle to the grave, humans have all the makings of moral monsters within them. You know, um, every major sin is a minor sin full grown. That's important for you to understand. Every major sin has the same DNA of what we call the minor sins. Waiting to pray on all that is pure and innocent. We fight and we bicker with one another. We tell lies. We scratch and claw and hate and lust and kill until there's no peace, no joy, no community. Instead, we have become infected with loneliness, dissatisfaction, pain, and misery, subsisting in a darkened veil of tears. We are haunted with tragedy all around. Life is full of an inescapable poison, and we are infected with death. It's not to say there's not common grace on this world, and there's good things because of that. But it is to say, for Jesus to heal that would require more than a miracle, a sign miracle. It would require what the sign miracle pointed to where Jesus would become our sin bearer. He would become our scapegoat. He would take the judgment that we deserve. And then having received that judgment in full, being raised from the grave, reversing the verdict on our sin. This is where John is headed. And this is what John wants you to believe. It's why he writes it. And so as Adam and the musicians come forward... I realize, I recognize most of us have had Jesus come and given sight to our blind spiritual eyes. 
But this is one of those passages that we pray will give us better eyes to see and behold who he is and what he came to do. Some of you, you're still in darkness. And you need Jesus to come to bear. He does it all. But you still have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to humble yourself and recognize I'm blind and I need to see. And I'm going to repent and I'm going to trust in Christ. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.